please join with me in prayer? Lord, once again, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for this word, which is inspired by you, and through the pen of Matthew, we're able to see him like we've never seen him before. Lord, I pray that as, as this word is brought forward, it would help your people to know that they are salt and light. I pray that my words would be accurate, and Lord, that they would be a blessing to every ear which is assembled here this morning, so that we, more so than ever before, would recognize how beloved we are of you, Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in your name we pray, amen. Well, during Epiphany, we're, we're journeying through these chapters in Matthew, and these are the greatest words Jesus ever spoke on the Sermon on the Mount, I would argue. And so it's, it's a wonderful thing to get here. And last week, we were in what was called the Beatitudes. And we learned in those Beatitudes of what the Christian life is supposed to look like. When a person has a relationship with God in Jesus Christ through faith in Him, these are the gospel characteristics that are evident that such a person is poor in spirit. Such a person, when life hits them, it's okay to mourn. And they mourn with those who mourn, that they are meek people, that they are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, that they are, uh, you know, just et cetera, et cetera, right? And so... When we exhibit these characteristics and these beliefs in the gospel, we heard once again this morning, and this is purposeful, I went back to verse 11 and tagged it on, so I think we need to be reminded, you know what, when we live like this, we're going to get kicked back. There's going to be some kickback from family, kickback from colleagues, kickback from friends that we've known for a long, long time. But take heart, God's people have always been treated this way, and it's okay. And today, we go a step further with our Lord as he's there on the Sermon on the Mount, seated, teaching as the good rabbi that he is. And we learn that since we have that relationship, then these are the kind of effects that we're going to have in the world. Verses 10 and forward. And so these are intriguing metaphors that Jesus gives us today. So I invite you to open up with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Because what we hear in these verses, verses 12 and onward, is that we will be salt, verse 13. We will be light, verse 14. And we do this because we have one who's done it all on our behalf, verses 17 through 20. First, your light. Second, your salt. Third, because we have a hero who's done it all. Well, let's look at these characteristics. First, let's look at what it means to be salt. Jesus says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. We need to be reminded that in the ancient world, salt was more of a preservative than it was a seasoning. And it was even in, in my father's lifetime. My father grew up in utter poverty. And he said when, when they would run out of ice, they broke out the salt to preserve their meat. And so it's, it's within, you know, a couple generations 
that this practice has been done. And because when salt is truly used as a preservative, it's rubbed into the meat. You rub it in and you store it. Why? To stem the decay, to delay it, so that, and it's quite a fascinating image because, you know, salt and meat can last quite a long time. And so what does this mean in the real world? It means that when we see someone's life falling apart, you know, how do we respond to the problems of the world individually? You know, when people have all kinds of problems, family problems, relationship problems, financial problems, what do we do? Well, I know what, you know, my default is, is, uh-uh, I'm not going in there. That's a mess, right? I don't want to get all involved. It's absolutely exalting to dive into such dysfunction. But Jesus, what he's saying is, you know, a Christian... When we see someone's life falling apart, we go in. We enter in to delay and stem the decay. And not only do we do this as individuals, we do this as a church community to the society, to the problems that are going on in our neighborhoods, in our schools, and in our society, all the social problems, the economic problems. See, Christians don't run away, friends. We intentionally enter in. Now, many people don't do that, right? Many people just say, no, get me out of here. But Jesus is saying, if, if we're Beatitude Christians, then we get creative. And we, prior, we prioritize it the way we use our time. We enter in there because we're his. Now, it is possible to enter into people's problems be all for the wrong reasons. Because there are those people who thrive in the midst of crisis. You know that, right? They exist for the need to be needed. Anybody who understands the family dynamics of alcoholism know this to be true. How often have you had a situation within a marriage where one spouse is an alcoholic and the other is not, and suddenly the alcoholic gets sober, and sometimes the case is that the marriage breaks up. Why? Because a person who wasn't an alcoholic needed the alcoholic to be an alcoholic so they could cure them or they could make him a mess. And now that they're cured, the marriage breaks up. Or maybe they had a need to be superior. You see, those are the wrong motives to enter in. And we need to check and know that our motives, because we don't have all the answers necessarily. But what Jesus is talking about here in being salt is... We are those who know Colossians 1.17, that Jesus Christ, in him, through faith in him, all things hold together. Because you see, as a true Christian, we know what it's like to have our lives a wreck. We know what it's like to have our lives falling apart, and we know what it's like to have Jesus bring it together. And make it whole, and so when we see lives around us falling apart... We enter in. We don't do so with a superiority mindset or I'm going to fix this mindset. We enter in to stem the decay, to simply help others pick up the pieces and put their lives together because that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. So to be salt means to be involved. And as a matter of fact, you'll be able to know that 
we are a salty congregation when the community around us says, huh, I don't necessarily believe what they believe, but man, they're so involved in the community. What would we do without them? When that happens, we're salt. Because without Jesus in a person's life, my friends, they're decaying. And we're the ones with this good news that not only preserves, but adds a great seasoning and taste for life. Secondly, we recognize that we're the light of the world. Verse 14. Because the world is a dark place. Oh, it's a very nice, I, I love living here, you know. I got, I got my, my house, I got my dog, I got my wood stove, and I've got my stack of wood out back. And I got snow covering the divots I spoke about last week. You can't even see them. <laughs> it's great. It's great. My truck got stuck. Um, you see, when you're light, what it does is it symbolizes, one, truth. Because truth exposes falsehood. And secondly, it exposes hope. It brings hope because light is so brilliant and beautiful. And Jesus says, we are the light of the world. And he means that we are the ones that bring this hope and joy to the world through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, the world doesn't buy that, you know. And my whole life, I've met people that are super brilliant. And I read a part of an autobiography this week written by a great 20th century novelist and playwright. He was English, known as Somerset Maugham. He was a 20th century European intellectual. And he believed, like many of our coworkers, many of our neighbors, a little more educated perhaps, they believed that, you know, there might be a God, but you really can't know for sure. Um, but we're probably here by accident, and we really have no way of deciding ultimately what is right and wrong. And so when you die, that's it. And Somerset Mom was more willing than most to say what that exactly means when you say that and you believe that. Quote, he says, if one puts aside the existence of God and survival as an after death is too doubtful, if death ends all, and if I neither have to hope for good after death or fear evil after death, I must then ask myself, what am I here for? And how in these circumstances must I conduct myself? And the answer is plain and so unpalatable that most will not face it. And that is, there is no meaning for life, therefore life has no meaning. Because what he's doing is he's calling out with the world how they live their lives. Because a bunch of people around us believe that. And what he's saying here is, most people believe that, you know, there's no God. This is all there is. I really, there's no way I can possibly know, therefore I I live however I want to live. Therefore, go ahead and have a nice day. You know, go get some wings and some Bud Light for tonight's game, and it's the Super Bowl. Go Falcons! Right? (laughs) Mama's turning 90, and she lives in Georgia. The state's quite excited. 
But what Somerset Mom is saying, without the light of salvation, it's a dark world. You're being inconsistent. And you see, most of our world doesn't want to admit how dark it is. But we, my friends, are reasonable, placing our trust in the historical reality of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, our light. And that we're saved by that grace and faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so the first point of this is, number one, that I have an assurance that the moment I die and I enter into God's presence, every one of my deepest desires is fulfilled. Every single one of them. And two, no matter what, you and I are his. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. You hear me quote that at least monthly, right? Because I have good days, I have bad days, but I'm his. And we can have full assurance that there is a future. And we can live in that light. You know what it's like to walk into a dark room. All you need is a little light, right? And I can see the silhouette of the room and I can get around. That's what happens when we are light into the world. The world starts to get around and see who Christ truly is. And so we have a great hope and we can proclaim it. But that's not all that Jesus is saying. Instantly, in the second half of verse 14, he starts to mix his metaphors. Now, your English teacher would say you can't do that, you know. But Jesus didn't speak English, and he's a Western, uh, Near Eastern rabbi. He's not thinking Western, and he wants us to see something great truth. A, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. Why, that is really interesting that he suddenly shifts and talks about cities and baskets when he's been mentioning light. You would think he'd talk about the property of light and all that it can do to illuminate, right? No, he doesn't do that. What he's saying here is, you know, most cities were never built on a hill. It's too expensive. And it's too impractical because the water is down at the river at the base of the hill. And so that's where the water source is and that's where the commerce and traffic of the river is. But the, what he's saying is if you do have a city set on a hill... At nighttime, every lamp of every home can be seen for miles and miles and miles. It can't be hidden. And therefore, what Jesus is saying is that we are the light of the world. He's not simply saying that you have this truth and you have this hope. He says we should live in light of that hope and hold out that truth to the whole world. And what he's saying is that we are a counterculture. The way that we are a light of the world is not only by what we say, it's also by how we live in this community, ladies and gentlemen. It means that we are an alternate suburban West Shore within the West Shore. And that's what the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is all about. And you're going to hear it over the next few weeks. In John Stott's commentary on the Sermon on the Mount I was reading this week, it's entitled, The Christian Counterculture. Great, great title. And he wrote it in the 70s. That was 40 years ago. Seemed like yesterday. You know, so all the rest of the Sermon on the Mount tells us what that city on a hill looks like. 
You want to know what human sexuality should really be like? Look at this. You know? It's not what your teachers, your professors, what your neighbors, what your frat brothers say it is. It's radically different according to the Lord. You want to know about money and possessions? Jesus has a lot to say about it, and it's radically different from what the world says. We want to know about relationships and power and influence within those relationships. It's radically different. This is how the city on the hill should live. And so the rest of the Sermon on the Mount will show for us that it's not enough to just hold up the truth and hold up the hope that we have. If the world around us looks at Christ church and they don't see us living any different than any other suburban Clevelanders when it comes to sex, money, relationships, and we're no different, and then our message is null and void in the culture. It's no different. It means, it means we're hiding it under a basket. And Jesus is saying, take the basket off. All it takes is a little spark, right? One last thing about this. To be salt and light means the beauty of our lives show us what those things are. To be salt and light means to bring that joy and hope, yes. But it also means it's a corporate place. We're a city on a hill. Salt has to work together with other grains of salt. One little grain of salt is not going to season anything, right? And that means that we, ladies and gentlemen, have to be a unit together. It's true that salt and light means individually you get involved with people's lives and you show them the beauty of Christ, but it's actually only as a group of Jesus Christ is talking about here. Do you realize that? That means, for example, the way in which we relate to one another across socioeconomic bounds, across racial boundaries, across business and professional lives, how we conduct ourselves outside of this community, the way in which we involve ourselves in the arts is going to be the way the rest of the world can see who Jesus Christ is. See, the church is not a club. It's not supposed, it's supposed to be, rather, a colony. It's a city, a new humanity, where people can see what socioeconomic relationships that the, the mechanic can hang out with the lawyer. That the races and the race relationships and what it really means to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That means that we're not allowed, really, inside the church to only talk to the kinds of people who you would talk to outside the church. We talk to everybody here. Do you ever look at somebody, a brother or sister, and rejoice to say, if it weren't for Christ, there's no way I'd be loving you the way I do? Or let me flip it. You know, you know there's people in this room that drive you absolutely nuts, right? Right? But you love them anyway. That shows that God is working in us because we hang out together, not only on Sunday mornings, but throughout the week. Now, as a question as we end, are you the light of the world? The answer is, number one, you have to be lit. Have you 
you ever been lit? Has the light of Christ ever come into your life? That's the question to ask. Are you converted? Have you been born again? The only way to answer that is if Jesus' light has come into your life. Has there ever been an aha moment? I get it. A lot of you, yeah, I have had that aha moment. But there might be a few of you that, no, not, not really. Well, I want you to look at the beauty of Jesus Christ and everything he's done for you as we wrap up here in a few minutes. And check it and look at who Jesus truly is. Because we want to make sure that this community sees not only the truth and the hope that we offer, but the beauty of who Jesus Christ truly is. Why? Why are we salt and light? Well, because there's one who has done it all for us. Look at verse 17. Jump down. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You see, Jesus, what he's saying in that statement, everything that God demands of us in no being obedient people, he has fulfilled for us upon the cross. Because when you, when you see all these beatitudes, and you see, oh, I'm not as salty as I should be. I'm not as illuminous as I should be. That's good. Thank God. Because Jesus is saying, I have done this for you. Because that's the exact point. Jesus died the death we deserve to die, and he lived the life we should have lived so that we can surrender it all to him and live for him as salt together. As light, not just a little 25 watt, but 1,000 megawatts just illuminating to this culture who's got to put on sunglasses because, oh, it's those Anglicans again. That's the point. We get the cross. He's fulfilled it all. And it's because he's fulfilled it all, you wear a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees and the scribes. You say, well, I don't feel like it. Well, good. I'm glad you don't. That means you get it. You're getting that aha moment. But I'm not who I was. And I'm growing in it. You see, there's an unfolding story that's all around us, ladies and gentlemen. It's a story that God is writing in your life and mine. It's the story upon which all other stories rest. It's this story that gives meaning to all the other stories that have been written. It's the story. And we all have a part in it. It's a story that explains why there's good evil, but yet there's something greater than that evil. It's a story that's filled with great brokenness, but there's good news of the gospel that transforms lives. It's the story of this creator God stepping into his creation that fills up the brokenness with the story of Jesus Christ's redeeming work upon the cross. And we are people of salt. We are people of the light. And as Jesus accomplished his work upon the cross on our behalf, to pay for our sin. He took God's judgment that we deserved and that we can actually know this God 
and we can live this life in this community to bring the light of the gospel to the darkest corners across the West Shore. Although our communities hide it very well, that darkness is there, and we can shed the light on it. And it's a story that's being unfolded here against the darkness of greed, against the darkness of materialism, against the darkness of individualism, of the darkness of consumerism, the darkness of uh, sexual addiction, the darkness of drug addiction, the darkness of broken families that are pervading our culture. Jesus says, you, Christ Church, are the city on a hill. My redeemed, voluminous light for the whole world to see. And God is writing the next chapter right here in our lives, gathering a group of people who are more committed than just attending church on Sunday mornings, instead of being the church Monday through Saturday. Imagine that the church is not so much a place with programs, but rather as a people gathered with a purpose to be dispersed. Imagine a church where that happens what happens on Monday through Saturday is just as strategic and as important as what happens on Sunday morning. Imagine a group of people engaged in the community for the good of the community. Imagine with me a team of missionaries scattered all throughout our neighborhoods all over the West Shore region. All kinds of people, too. Artists gathered with professionals, mechanics, businessmen, educators, from Rocky River all the way to Memorial Stadium next door. Imagine a church that was committed to being a redeemed city within the city. Imagine a church that's committed to being salt together, to being light together. Imagine with me Christ Church West Shore. That's who we are. That's where we're headed. Follow Jesus with me no matter where you're found, in your neighborhood, in your cubicle, in your desk, in your shop. And we'll be salt, we'll be light, and we'll wear his righteousness forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful word, and I pray that as you empower us by the Holy Spirit, that as we wear this righteousness and walk into our neighborhoods this week, that we'd be salty and and illuminous, that we wouldn't overdo it, that we wouldn't call merely attention to the fact that we're living in salt and light. We would be salt. We would be light. And we will in turn create a thirst for others. We would just do it. And as we do it, we would talk about it and not hold back. And, and Lord, that we would find the niches in our communities where we can effectively be the people and, and make this world a better place because of the reality of your truth and hope that you give us. And Lord, as we do so, that we wouldn't uh, worry about the few around us that we resist. Because we know not everybody will positively respond to Christ. Uh, Lord, inspire us and empower us to recognize that that's not something we can control but allow us to be faithful no matter where we're found. For your honor and glory, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.